Greetings, everybody. This is Hear Her Sports, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. This week's guest is Cheryl Cookie, Associate Professor of American Studies and Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. She has been involved with a longitudinal study of the quantity and quality of men's and women's sports and media. It is from this study that the stat 44% of athletes are women and only 4% of media coverage is about women. That stat launched Hear Her Sports podcast. Cheryl is here to look more deeply about the findings. Things to look out for are one, Cheryl mentions dude time, like yo dude. The phrase came from a sports commentator leading into his next segment, as in, it's now time to talk about dude sports, which of course is funny because he probably had just been talking about dude sports. Two, the history of women in sports leads to why we have the attitudes we do today of women's participation and capabilities. And finally, three, we talk about Castor Semenya. Cheryl's study of media coverage of this tremendous athlete is from a decade ago, is still relevant, and Semenya's ordeal is still ongoing. Before we get started, remember to tell your friends about the podcast. As you will hear today, Cheryl says, these niche media sources are where it's at for all the good stuff. Thank you, Cheryl. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm here with Cheryl Cookie, an associate professor of American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Purdue University. Her research focuses in three areas, gendered media representations of sport, gender politics of sport and public policies, and how gender shapes sports experiences, cultural meetings, and organizational structures of sports. Welcome, Cheryl. I think a lot about media coverage, so this is really going to be fun to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Sure. So Hear Her Sports was started after I watched the movie, a media coverage and female athletes and hearing for the first time that 44% of athletes are women, but only 4% of media coverage is about women. I was so struck by that number. I mean, 4%, I mean, really, it's just nothing. And so the film was made in 2014. Could you bring us up to date and, you know, like what's been changing or not changing in sports media coverage in the past five years? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I almost feel like you might want to have me back on your show next summer. We are actually in the process of collecting data. So for your listeners, the statistic that your listeners just heard is is based off of research that myself and my colleague at the University of Southern California, Michael Mesner, have conducted. And it's a longitudinal study that looks at the quantity and quality of coverage of men's and women's sports on televised local affiliates. And then uh, I think it was in 1999, we added in Sports Center. So it's really looking at how televised media and highlight shows cover women's sports, how that differs from men's sports, what's the overall amount of coverage, and, and when women and women athletes are featured, how are they featured? How are they portrayed? And so the study began in, in 1989. At the time, it was uh, Michael Messner and his colleague, Margaret Carlisle Duncan, who has since retired. So in, in 1989, they were just looking at the local news affiliates in Los Angeles. And what they found was that about 5% of the coverage on the local news. So this is, you know, you turn on the local news at 6 p.m., you turn on the, the local news at 11 p.m., your sports segment within that half hour block of time is about two to three minutes. So then they're counting within that two to three minute segment of the broadcast, how much time is devoted to women's sports. And what they found in 1989 was that about 5% focused on women's sports. 
this is a longitudinal study, so this means that we collect data over time, and the time frame for our data collection is, is every five years. So we collected data then in 1993, 1999, which is when I came on as a, as a graduate research assistant on the study, 2004, 2009, which I came in as a kind of a co-PI in the study, and then in 2014. So what we found over that time, there's there's some variance in the data, but when looking at the local news affiliates, uh, there was a bit of a spike in 1999, but over the course of that period, the coverage of women's sports never exceeded double digits. Uh, and in fact, the highest we saw was in 99, it, it just reached under 9%. In the 2014 data collection, which is the most recent data that we have for the study, what in fact happened was that there was a kind of decline in coverage from 99 to 2014. Only 3.2% on the local affiliates was dedicated to women's coverage. When we looked at ESPN Sports Center, there's really not much change over time from 99 to 2014, and it really hovers around 2%. So this is a particular study um, where we're looking at a specific sample and, and, and specific time frames. But certainly, I think what we see in some of the other research that's been published in the field that's looked at media coverage um, and compared men's and women's coverage, whether we're looking at different media platforms, so be that a television, newspapers, and other print media, and now online media and social media, these disparities exist. If we're looking at local coverage versus national coverage, these kinds of trends exist. The one exception to the rule in terms of this data, and in particular in the United States, but we've seen this in other countries as well, is when we look at Olympic media coverage, and our study doesn't necessarily do this, um, but some of my colleagues, specifically Andy Billings at the University of Alabama, has found that Olympic media coverage and broadcast coverage in particular, so if you're turning on NBC and you're watching broadcast live coverage of sports, that there actually is more equitable coverage. And in fact, I think in the last Olympic Games, in I believe it was 2018 in Pyeongchang, on the US NBC broadcasts, there was in fact slightly more coverage of women's sports than men's sports. Do you guys have theory about why the Olympic coverage is much more equal than day-to-day -day coverage? Yeah, so I think one of the things that some scholars will will point to is the fact that that these are very high profile international events, right? So if you're looking at the Olympics, and um, we also saw this with the U.S. Women's World Cup in 2015 and again in 2019, tremendous amount of media coverage, tremendous amount of ratings and and fan interest that got captured because the games or or the event was broadcast on accessible stations at accessible times. So you have these high profile international events, right? And so what scholars have pointed to is that there is this kind of sense of nationalism and national identity that comes into play. And so when we're looking at media coverage that's just women's sports and women competing against women or American women competing against other American women, right? Just kind of regular seasons of, of various sports that we tend not to see as much media coverage, but however, when it's in the international context, so now you have American women competing against women from other countries, there's a sense of kind of nationalism that comes into play that sort of allows for an entry point so that I'm not necessarily watching women's sports, but now I'm watching the sort of wider 
uh, competitive event that taps into, you know, Americans versus Canadians or Americans versus Russians. And right. now I'm cheering for the country as opposed to cheering for women specifically. I'm cheering for the American women. Oh, that's um, interesting. It just so happens that they're women, right? So there's right. this kind of how scholars call this is kind of the intersection of of gender and, and nationalism. And I think certainly these these international high profile events just kind of capture the consciousness of American culture because it taps into other narratives around like us versus them. Right. So which also kind of connects to to nationalism as well. So that we're, you know, we're cheering for us against them, which is a really sort of dominant narrative in sport and in, in, in media coverage of sport. I also wonder, though, you know, like a big problem that I see is there's no sustained coverage of women's sports. And, you know, so the audience doesn't build up. You don't learn the characters. You don't learn the stats. And that's so different from what you see in men's sports. And then with the Olympics and the World Cup that you mentioned, you know, you you kind of can jump in right in the middle and still get a good story because it's very concentrated. Yeah. So, in fact, going back to our, our study and the, the title of this study, and anyone can find this online, it's it's published open access. It's called, um, It's Due Time, A Quarter Century of Excluding Women's Sports and Televised News and Highlight Show. And and the quote, It's Due Time, is actually directly from one of our broadcasts where the, the announcer was kind of, you know, segueing into a discussion of, of men's sports. And so what we found in some of the, the data is that, in fact, men's sports are covered all the time, right? So it's it's never too soon, too late, or too early to talk about men's sports. And so we actually found that there was more coverage of men's sports when they're out of season than there is coverage of women's sports when <laughs> those sports are in season. And we looked at the NBA and oh, the WNBA uh, to contrast that. So you're 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 right. You're spot on in terms of your your kind of perception that there really isn't a sustained effort to cover women's sports with that same level of excitement, that same level of investment, the same high quality production values that we see during these sort of international events. And so in some ways, I would argue the Olympics um, and the Women's World Cup and other high profile international events like this are actually the exception that proves the rule rather than the reverse, right? And so that that it's these kind of spikes in, in media coverage that signal in some ways, or at least should signal to sports media that if you if you deliver a product that is compelling and and captivating that people will tune in. One of the th great things that um, the Olympics have done, Olympic broadcasts have done, is exactly what you said: is to kind of provide those the narratives, the background, so that as a as a fan or as a viewer, you can jump right in, right? And because when we're looking at other competitive sports, you know, beyond just the the Olympic sports and the Olympic event itself, it's very difficult for the average fan or the average viewer to really get a sense of what the landscape of women's sports is like because there is this dearth of coverage in the everyday sport media platforms, right? Uh, or if there is coverage, typically what we'll see is is it focuses on these kinds of controversies, um, you know, or these kind of like one-off stories as opposed to, you know, let's get into the day-to-day the -day of what's happening in women's sports, who's playing who, you know, histories of the team, rivalries, 
predictions, all the kinds of things that I think make following sports really exciting for not only just the the avid sports fan, but just the the kind of general viewer as well. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. About and I'm I'm not exactly sure how to ask this question, but I remember NBC's Olympic coverage way back when, when it first started, the up close and personal. And even then, I was a kid. You know, I was you know ten or younger, and I remember being offended even at that moment because I was like, "That's not the sports. It's something completely different." And I wanted even at, at that young age more about the sports. But I sometimes think that we just haven't figured out, or the media hasn't figured out how to cover women's sports. You know, they they can't cover, they now know they can't cover women's bodies and then they're flummoxed. Like, what do we do now? Yeah. And I think I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I I would wholeheartedly agree. I just, I don't think we figured out how to cover women's sports. And, and, And part of that has to do with the way in which sports and athletics has historically developed in the United States and in other countries as well as really a kind of cultural arena for the construction, display, and celebration of masculinity and, and specifically hegemonic masculinity, right? So, so when you add women into that space, how does the, how do we change the cultural narrative so that it's inclusive? Are, are women sort of adopting that kind of masculine ethos that is sort of embedded within sports cultures and our cultural expectations for sports? Or do we create a kind of different narrative, right? And so I think what you're tapping into is this sort of uh, way in which the media have, oh, well, let's focus on the, the stories. And the stories aren't the same kinds of stories that we tell about men's sports. They're the kinds of stories that we think we should be telling about women's sports. So right. we'll see, and we saw this in some of our, our research, right, in the past, and this was one of the uh, maybe quote unquote positive changes, although I try to avoid the, the terms positive and negative, but it was an improvement, if you will, uh, in terms of the qualitative coverage over time. So in the early phases of the study, so late 80s, early 90s, when we looked at the qualitative dimensions of the coverage, what we found was that women were, in terms of their portrayals or the representation, were were kind of featured as sexual objects or or you know kind of hypersexualized objects of the male gaze. Um, their participation or presence in sport was either you know trivialized or just marginalized wholesale, right? In terms of the lack of coverage. Over time, what we started to notice was that the the media, at least within our sample, moved away from some of that sexualization, and instead, by like mid two thousands, took on this kind of girl next door, um, still conventional gendered representations, but more around, you know, the the uh, women in women's sports and women athletes as, you know, this is the girl next door, the mother, the girlfriend. So again, very conventional gender roles, but that sexualization or explicit sexualization was somewhat diminished. And then what we found in the latest iteration of the study, and, and so I'll be interested to see how this plays out, is what we call gender bland sexism. So we had been arguing or advocating for more respectful coverage of women's sports throughout the study, um, that we wanted to see conventional gendered stereotypes or sexualization. We wanted to see that removed from the coverage. And in fact, the the media certainly did that in, in 2014. But what we found then is that it was this respectful coverage was absent of any kind of excitement or high production values or rich verbal descriptors that like really add to the way in which we consume sports through through media outlets. 
well, certainly gender isn't absent or gender is very salient in sports context because sports are sex segregated, right? So we, we kind of term this as gender bland sexism. And so what we saw in the coverage was sportscasters and announcers delivering women's sports with very bland, flat intonation, um, very matter of fact approach, just the bare bones, minimal that's needed to to cover a particular story. And the segments were very short. Whereas with the men's coverage, you've got these lengthy stories um, with a lot of exciting clips from game footage, uh, really exciting voice intonations. I won't do this for your listeners. I won't I won't torture them this way. But if anybody's watched, you know, Sports Center, right? The kind of you know very excited fluctuations and and colorful descriptors and the bams and the wows and the slams and you know. Uh, cutting through the defense, like, you know, knife through butter, you know, all these kind of really exciting ways that that sports gets presented. And so when when in contrast with women's sports, as a viewer, what you come away with is like, gosh, women's sports are kind of boring. <laughs> and 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 because that fits into a larger narrative of women and women athletes as second class citizens, right. how that, oh, my gosh, women's sports are boring isn't attributed to the media themselves because nobody's sitting here like we are and like counting and, you know, keeping track of everything and, and, you know, collecting all these, these stats and data points. Right. But what, so what you come away with as a viewer is, is, is women's sports are boring and it's because, well, women's women are inferior athletes. Um, the, the, they're just not as good as the men. The men's game is just more exciting. And this gets attributed to, you know, biological differences between the sexes or the genders rather than the ways in which media presents sports to us in very different ways. So the media is not simply just a reflection of our society, but how media covers sports is really informed in, in, in a great part by uh, larger cultural ideologies around gender. So I really, I agree with you that we, we have not figured this out. We being, you know, sports media scholars certainly have some ideas as to how this might be improved, certainly, but it's, it's definitely a debate. Uh, and I think that it, it taps into really some complex issues too, in terms of what fans want to see and what the media thinks fans want to see. Right. And I think that's so important is, you know, the media is using the lack of audience to say that there's no interest, but they're not providing anything. At least they're not providing anything that's easy to watch. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a, just, it's a really easy way for sport media, which is, which what we see from the statistics is still predominantly male. Um, right. There's still a, a kind of very dominant masculine ethos in mainstream sport media. Now, certainly folks like yourself and other like niche markets are, are tapping into that fan interest, but you have to really know about it and seek it out. Right. At the same time, though, right, so this this kind of idea of what fans want, I always use this analogy. I'm going to try it out with your listeners, and you can tell me whether or not it works, right? But if we think about the sport media as a vending machine, right, in your workplace, you're, you've got like your candy vending machine, your snack vending machine, and your, your vending machine only has Butterfinger, Kit Kats, and Skittles. Uh, it's it's Halloween, so we're thinking about candy, I guess, right? <laughs> right? But your favorite candy bar is Snickers, right? So you go you go to the vending machine. You, you're at work. You need a snack. You need a pick afternoon pick me up, and so you don't see Snickers. So what do you do? Okay, well I'll I'll get a Kit Kat, and so then you get Kit Kat because maybe that's kind of like a Snickers to you. 
more so than Skittles, but you get a Kit Kat. The vending machine operator who's filling the machine is like, oh my God, we keep selling out of Kit Kats. There's no need for us to provide Snickers. But if Snickers were in that vending machine, you would start buying it. Right. And then the vending machine would be like, oh, wow, oh my gosh. So I would argue, and I think there's some research that comes out of the University of Minnesota Tucker Center that empirically speaks to this, is that the interest in women's sports is there. And we see this in these moments like the Women's World Cup, in particular, the 2019. I mean, the over a billion people worldwide tuned in. Um, and in male fact, and the, female. Male, male and female, both men and women are identifying as sports fans. So this this kind of idea or misperception that only women watch women's sports is just not borne out by the data. But then we also see that viewers are interested, again, when you show women's sports and do it in the right kinds of ways, people tune in and, and people want to see it. But what we see then is it's really difficult to sustain that. Now, one thing I do think is a positive outcome in all of this, um, or at least a positive shift. Again, I hate using that term and I'm using that term, right? Um, but what, what we didn't see in the past with the world cups was that, you know, the women went to the world cup, a lot of excitement, a lot of ratings, a lot of fan interest. They came back to the States and then the cameras just turned off because they didn't have a television contract this year in 2019, the women do have a television contract with ESPN. Uh, and so, you know, you're able to watch some of the professional games, um, which many of the the national women's team players participate in on television. So I, 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 I'm hoping that that will, you know, kind of tap into that market in more meaningful ways. Yeah, I want to add to your vending machine analogy, because, you know, what if, for example, no one knows about gummy bears? You know, you do, you've never heard yeah. of gummy bears before, yeah. and they're not in the vending machine. You don't even know that that's an option. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a, oh, so this, this means that the analogy worked then I think, right. <laughs> um, no, I think that's a great way to kind of push the analogy further, right? Because I, I teach a class on understanding the NFL this semester at Purdue university. And I have a, a module in, in that that's looking at women in football. Now, of course, women don't participate. They're not athletes in the NFL league, but women do play professional football. And there are several professional football leagues in the United States. But when I talk to people, most people just assume that like women don't play football. And so that that's the gummy bear, right? There's all kinds of sports. And I would argue both men's and women's that we just don't really hear much about or know about, but could potentially be uh, really popular sports. Again, if we had more uh, conversation and, and more cultural visibility around those sports. Right. Let me ask you, what would your ideal sports coverage of women athletes and women's sports be? Like, what would you hope for in, I don't know, five years, whatever? Gosh, that's a great question. One of the, the things that we suggested in, in our research is that the, the media cover women's sports with the same kind of investment, and whether that's economic investment, whether that's cultural investment, as they do men's sports, that there is just more visibility around women's sports in sport news media. In particular, I think we've seen some really important shifts in the broadcast landscape that hasn't translated or that hasn't spilled over into the, the sports news landscape. So I think just covering women's sports with that same kind of investment, um, the same level of quality of production values and I think there's sport journalism schools and, and sport communication schools and programs that are, are educating 
their students who are going to become the future media professionals around these kinds of issues. You know, how do we cover sports in ways that don't don't fall into the same, you know, kind of stereotypical sexist patterns that we've seen in the past. And I, I think there's also this sort of way that, um, you know, that that might help in terms of the the mainstream media space. I also think conversely, and I don't know how we do this, um, this is like the million dollar question, but I think there's definitely more potential today than there was even five years ago for women's sports to kind of break through that wall, <laughs> that sport media wall of coverage that's that's just focused so much on men through either online or social media spaces, right? And so there is this kind of niche market that's out there. But the question is, again, it kind of goes back to that like gummy bears dilemma, right? That, that how do we get more people aware of these spaces, um, media outlets and platforms that are doing a fantastic job of, of covering women's sports, but just haven't been able to sort of break through into those mainstream spaces. One of the things that we're doing in the 2019 study is to look at online and social media coverage. And now, again, this is somewhat limited because we're only looking at mainstream outlets. So um, we're looking at the official Twitter accounts of you know NBC Sports, CBS Sports, ESPN, ESPNW, as well as online platforms of those same uh, media outlets. So, you know, ESPN.com, NBCSports.com, and so on. Uh, so it'll be interesting to, to see if there's there's any difference there. But I do think in terms of those niche media markets that are really doing fantastic job of covering women's sports, that we need to kind of push those more into the mainstream. But I think that at the end of the day also involves a, a kind of wider cultural shift in terms of how we understand female athleticism and women's sports. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit earlier about sort of the history of women's sports. And I was really fascinated in that book, uh, No Slam Dunk, that you wrote with Michael Mesner about the history. I hadn't realized that that idea of, you know, the fear of women becoming masculinized was so entrenched and longstanding. And, and that's where it comes from. It's just it was so weird just to see it as part of history. Yeah. And I think there's some ways that, you know, that those fears of, of masculinization, I think, um, are still with us today. Now, now sure. certainly not as extreme as they were at the turn of the 20th century and in the beginning of the 20th century. But but certainly I think that we see that reflected in in some of the ways that that women are portrayed or, or you know, are, are encouraged to portray themselves or, or wish to portray themselves in media coverage. And so, you know, I think the controversy around Castor Semenya is tapping into some really problematic belief systems that we have around gender, athleticism, physicality, and and sort of beauty norms that are really kind of based on white westernized notions of, right. of, of femininity, right? Um, but I think we also see this too in, in other spaces where, you know, just anecdotally, college women athletes will, you know, tell me that, or I'll even hear from those who are working, you know, sports athletic trainers, you know, when they're working with female athletes, it's a challenge to get them to to train and to kind of really embrace a, a kind of training program that builds muscle for fear that they're going to get too big, right? right or they're going to look right. too manly, right? So I think that that we've moved away from that, but the kind of roots of that 
those fears still are the, the legacy, I guess, of those fears are still with us today in these in these different ways. And I think Serena Williams is unfortunately another illustration of that and the kind of media coverage, which is both, you know, gendered and, and racialized, but the kinds of conversations that have circulated in the media around her body. Um, and there was that one New York Times article, I think, that came out in like 2011 or 12 that was sort of pitting Serena Williams against white tennis players who are you know, kind of more conventionally feminine in terms of their bodily, uh, I want to say bodily appearance, but you know, that their, their bodies sort of conform more to kind of that thin stereotype, whereas, right. you know, Serena's body transcends and, and transforms some of those gendered logics around what our bodies should look like. And so, you know, there was, you know, female athletes, tennis players in this, this article saying that, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to train. I mean, these are professional women tennis players who are participating at the, you know, the highest level of their sports who are saying, yeah, I don't lift a lot in, in the gym because <laughs> right. I don't want to get bulky. And right. it's like, ah, okay. Well, so, well, um, you know, it's not only about body. It's also about behavior. You know, like I think even Serena, when she called out the, the judge, the line judge, and also, oh, yeah. you know, we go back to the World Cup with the celebration controversies. Yeah, and I think that those are those are really interesting moments where we do see a lot of kind of activity in the media in terms of covering women's sports when these sort of controversies uh, emerge and that the, the line judge being one of them, the celebration during the World Cup being another. For the listeners who, who may not be aware of this, during the World Cup, the U.S. women's team were, you know, celebrating. There was one game, I believe it was against Thailand, where the score was at the end, I think, 13 to zero or 13 to one, which if you watch soccer, I mean, most scores are like one zero, you know, two, three. You don't see 13 goals typically scored. And I believe it was one of the highest, if not the highest number of goals that were scored during a soccer match in, in the World Cup. And so the women were celebrating and there was some conversation in popular culture and, and media as to whether or not that was appropriate. What struck me in, in that moment, similar to the Serena Williams controversy, is that what they were doing wasn't anything different than what male athletes do. And in fact, I think when we look at, you know, soccer, the NFL, the NBA, right, when you when you have these moments of, you know, kind of dominance in the game, the reaction isn't to be demure, right? <laughs> and to, you know, sort of be humble in that moment, right? But you celebrate that moment. You you celebrate that uh, significant accomplishment that you or one of your teammates have made. And I think hearing from the athletes themselves, the World Cup athletes, there were some of the women who are scoring goals who, for them, that was the first time they had scored a goal in a World Cup game. So yeah, it might've been the eighth goal that the American team had scored, but it was the first goal for this one athlete. And so why not celebrate that? And I think that the reception, the fact that this was a controversy and then the kind of ways in which that was understood in many spaces, I think really speaks to the way that um, gender and gendered ideas around behavior, as you said, right, really inform how we see and accept women athletes and women athletes have to really walk that fine line between kind of certain types of femininities that might be expected and accepted off the field 
and the kinds of kind of masculinities or physical femininities that are accepted and expected on the field. That's that's kind of a balancing act. And I think we've moved more in terms of the culture of seeing those as not necessarily entirely distinct, right? I think there's been some shifts in, in masculinity and femininity over the past, you know, several decades so that they're more inclusive of, you know, what we might have considered non-normative behaviors 20 or 30 years ago or even 40 years ago, right? But there is still this sort of current within our culture that is resistant to embracing human beings as as holistic entities as opposed to gendered individuals that we have to fit into one box or another because of some sort of, you know, cultural prescription around that. It's also a weird message. You know, I thought about younger girls or women watching the World Cup. And, you know, on one hand, here are these really incredible female athletes, and they're doing a great job, they're scoring goals. But oh, no, maybe you shouldn't score so many goals, you shouldn't be so aggressive, you shouldn't be so competitive. It's just this sort of weird message. Yeah, it is a weird message. And I think that gets into that tension, right, of of what we expect of athletes on the field and what we expect of women off the field. And so certainly aggression, dominance, competitiveness, assertiveness, like these are all qualities that are are embraced, celebrated, expected when you're on the field. But somehow if you're a woman, then you have to or, you know, young girl, you're also expected to be cooperative and, you know, to be other oriented and to not be boastful and to be, I don't want to say like not be confident, but to be sort of quiet in your confidence, not uh, vocal in your confidence, right? And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely ridiculous <laughs> for that to, to be the message that, you know, a young girl walks away with. Since you brought up young girls, I think one of the other things that I was just really, as somebody who's advocated for uh, gender equality for the last 20 plus years, I, it still brings, I'm like tearing up right now, even just reflecting on it. When I was watching the celebration parade in New York, when the uh, U.S. Women World Cup team came back to the States after their World Cup win, and the city of New York put on this big ticker tape parade, and it was broadcast and, and streamed online, and so I was watching some of it. And one of the things that I was just really so happy to see, because it, it really illustrated in in a very simple but yet very profound way how social change is possible is that there were young girls and young boys at that parade along the parade route cheering and and wearing you know jerseys of the players the Alex Morgan jersey or parents were there uh, the media that were covering the event, I can't remember which network broadcasted the celebration, but you know they were talking to these young girls about, well, what does pay equity mean to you? So not only do we have a moment where young girls and young boys are you know out in this public setting, you know, celebrating the accomplishments of women athletes and are there supporting women athletes. But then we have a kind of news media who are, covering issues that are of concern for women athletes around pay equity and the wage gap. And so now young girls and young boys have an entry point, not only to see women as powerful, competent, strong women and athletes, but also to think about larger societal problems with the, the pay equity gap. And these young girls who are like eight or nine being able to explain what pay equity is and what does it mean to get paid more or less uh, as a woman. And it was just 
fascinating. And it's these moments that I have to hold on to. Otherwise, you know, just the research can be incredibly depressing. Right. Uh, but it's these moments that I have to hold on to that there that there is hope that that change is happening. And it might be small and it might be fleeting. It, it might be in, in just these, you know, particular spaces. But I think that that's one of the ways that progressive social change can happen is in those sort of moments. And, and, and maybe it's not, you know, a mass demonstration in the streets, although that's great, too. And if Megan Rapino wants to lead the resistance, like I am on board. Me, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love her um, yeah. as, as an athlete, as somebody who studies this. I mean, uh, as a um, as someone who's using her platform to do good in the world. I just think she's phenomenal. Right. But but, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't take that. Right. I think it, it, it can also be these sort of you know, smaller, maybe more micro, more contained moments where where some really important conversations can happen. Well, this is a good time. Could you talk about why looking at women and women in sports is so important and relevant? And, you know, I mean, for me and this podcast, it isn't just about sports. It's about all sorts of other stuff, which I gather is your way also. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and you know, for folks who, who aren't sports fans or, or into sport, and, you know, particularly, I think a lot of uh, academics, you know, kind of look sideways and think like, well, why are you studying sports? That seems kind of trivial. But I think for me as, as a feminist and as somebody who studies gender in American culture, sports to me are such a fascinating space and, and such a fascinating context to think about gender. And, and there's, there's a couple of reasons why, but primarily if we look at sport, right, I would argue that sport is one of the remaining, if not the only social institutions in our society by which girls and boys, men and women are segregated by sex and that that sex segregation is legally enforced and culturally accepted and expected, right? And so because of that, sex and gender becomes so highly salient. The other piece of this is that sport is about the body and, and, and bodies themselves are gendered. And so what happens in the context of sport is that all of these kinds of ideas about the natural body, about biological difference, about physicality come into play. And because sports are sex segregated, because men and women compete in different spaces, for the most part, sport ends up having the potential to kind of shore up these beliefs and misbeliefs, I would say, around sex and gender difference between men and women more globally. Right. So the so the conversations around gender difference are not just contained to the sport context, but extend to then explain and legitimate and justify other forms of gender discrimination, which rely on so-called natural differences between men and women or cultural differences between men and women. So sport really can be this kind of highly visible platform for the kind of reproduction of very harmful gender ideologies and gender stereotypes. At the same time, though, it can be a really powerful platform for challenging those very same 
gender ideologies and stereotypes. And so for those reasons, it's a really important project uh, that we we do in terms of, of studying sport and, and looking at sport in terms of what can sport tell us about our culture? What can sport tell us about how we think about and how we see men and women in our culture? Yeah, and I, you mentioned earlier, Castro Semenya, you've written about her and how we write about her in this country versus how she's written about in other countries. And I thought that was really fascinating that this idea of gender and what makes male and female is so cultural. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we we pointed out in, in that particular study is that in the United States, there was this sort of scientific discourse that infused much of the, the media coverage, right? So it was, the, you know, how the media were making sense of Castor Semenya. And this was 2009 through, I think, 2010 or 11, which, you know, at the time, collecting articles on this. Um, and I, I, I still want to do a, a kind of a longitudinal analysis and look at, you know, some of the more recent controversies surrounding Semenya with the, the changes um, in the IOC guidelines and questions around whether or not she'd be able to participate that, that emerged in 2018 and 2019. And I think the so either the IOC or the IAAF determined that she was a man, which is just, you know, absolutely ridiculous. So, so I mean, it would be interesting to look at the coverage today versus 10 years ago. But when we were looking at that coverage 10 years ago, within the U.S. media, how the media was trying to make sense of Semenya was through these very sort of medicalized scientific discourses, right? So how is sex determined and genetics and, and chromosomes and all of this? Conversely, in South Africa, that medicalized or scientific discourse was, for the most part, pretty absent in the coverage. And instead, it was the sort of assertion of Castor Semenya, her self-identification, the importance of her family and how her family saw her as a girl, positioning her relative to the kind of global context and the historical global context wherein African women have been the kind of objects of scientific, I want to say scientific inquiry, but it's 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 much more invasive than that, right? That that African women's bodies have been uh, objectified in the scientific literature and positioned as animalistic or somewhat other, right? And so the the South African media was sort of situating this controversy in in the context of those larger conversations around scientific racism and the ways in which African bodies in, you know, the, the 1800s and 1900s were kind of held up as, you know, biological or medical examples to reinforce the inferiority or the animalisticness of African women. So yeah, so certainly I think there, there's some really important differences there. And I, I want to recognize that Castor Semenya, you know, is, is a human being and that it's, it's unfortunate that because of her sporting excellence, you know, she has become in, in many ways a household name across the globe and not necessarily for her performance in and of itself, but because of this controversy I do think that we can, you know, look to the conversations that are happening both within the policy space in terms of the sex testing policies that are being implemented by the International Olympic Committee or the IAAF. So we can look at those policies. And I think if we're looking at those media or policies as text that can then shed light into, you know, how we think about how sex is defined, how, how gender is understood. I think that that can be really powerful in terms of, you know, illustrating some of the problematic ways in which, you know, sex and gender is constructed falsely in many ways uh, as a binary when it really is a continuum. Right, right. 
what would you imagine as being the impact or the effect of more equitable coverage? And I'm asking that both, you know, within sports, but also beyond sports. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's it's challenging because there's a um, a relationship between sport media and our culture, right? And so I think at certain moments in history, sport is sort of at the forefront of social change. And at other moments in history, sport is really, you know, kind of lagging behind um, or is, you know, kind of very entrenched in the status quo. And so when I think about what might be the impact of more equitable coverage in in media, you know, what what would cause that or what, what would bring that about? But if we're just looking at that wholesale, I think more equitable coverage of women's sports in the media um, and just, you know, more equitable representation of, of women or other unrepresented groups in our media and popular culture goes a long way in terms of shifting cultural perceptions, in terms of shifting the narratives, shifting ideologies, shifting people's perceptions. And with those shifts then comes, I think, more equality than in other spaces and other cultural and social institutions in our society. And so, you know, if we think about the importance of of visibility and how visibility can really, if it's done well, right, because visibility can also be very damaging. um, But when we have visibility, it really then, I think, changes our expectations around men and women, right? So I don't know if this is a good example or not, but for some reason, TV medical shows popped into my head, right? And, you know, in the past, maybe uh, medical shows, you know, the doctors were all men and the nurses were all women. Medical shows today are, are, are much different, right? And, and so you have women doctors and, and male doctors and male nurses and women nurses that are characters in these shows. And it creates a kind of sense that you know, gender maybe doesn't matter as much as we might say or think it does. Um, But then it also gives young people a kind of aspirational role model or just a sense that, you know, I'm not constricted to just being X, Y, and Z, but I can also be A through Z, you know, who I am in terms of my gender or my race or, or my sexual orientation. It isn't a factor into that. Right. Well, what was your impression of the WNBA coverage this year? Wait, who the WNBA? What happened? What was your impression of the coverage? No, no, no. That was oh. me being kind of. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll I'll be honest. Like I think that, and we'll see this maybe in in some of the the data that we collect if it falls into our our sample because we do get data from the July months. So that's when the WNBA is in season. You know, I think that I'm I'm less sort of tapped into some of that coverage. And I think that that speaks to sort of how I'm consuming media, which is more so in a sort of research sense as opposed to a fan sense. And so I think if I'm going to respond to that question, I've been in research mode. And so one of the things that I've noticed is just in terms of the mainstream news media outlets that I've been following is that the coverage has been abysmal. Right. And in fact, I haven't really seen a whole lot about the WNBA on those platforms. So I'm not sure if there's something specific that that you're talking about or speaking to or just in general. Wanted no, it was to know. just just in general. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, my experience, I think, speaks to how many people consume sport media. Right. Is, is if you're following 
certain, you know, accounts or if you're getting certain online newsletters or if you're going to certain new sites, you really are constrained to, to kind of what's there. And if you're just a general sport consumer, right, like you're not an avid fan, you're just kind of passively consuming whatever is there. And whatever is there is mostly men's sports, right? And, and in fact, I think um, 75% of the coverage in our last study was three men's sports. So it was men's baseball, basketball, and football at the collegiate or professional levels, right? So if you want to follow the WNBA um, and really get a sense of what's happening, you have to go to those kind of niche markets. You have to really seek out that coverage. One of the things that I'm really curious, and I think maybe this might be for the you know next iteration of the study, but to what extent do logarithms play into how we consume sport media? And what do you, mean? Um, you know, in the past, if we're thinking about you know legacy media or traditional media, right? You turn on the TV, and you know whatever's covered is covered by that network or or you know cable channel or what have you, right? Newspapers, you pick up the newspaper, it's in the sports pages. It's, it's sort of contained and in, in some ways static, right? even on online spaces, right? You click on a website and you, you get the information. But I think more and more people, especially younger people, are consuming media in a different way, which might be through social media, right? And so then if you think about Twitter, if you think about Facebook, if you think about Instagram, right? All of those run on a logarithms. And so what you click on, who you're friends with, who you're following, you know, all that gets sort of combined so that similar kinds of information then get into your feed. Right. But I think this is partly, you know, some of the concerns around, you know, the elections, right, is that we kind of live in these, I'm going to just you know, use media bubbles, right? So the logarithms are then pulling similar kinds of content. And so while we sort of imagine social media and we being researchers or we being, you know, women's sports advocates, you know, imagine social media as, this really sort of democratizing space that's going to allow for more diversity and content and more diversity of voices. And I think it's done that in, in, in many ways. And, and, and we can look to different examples to illustrate and support that. I think at the same time, though, what social media has the potential to do is to really create a, a media bubbles and contain the possibility and constrain the possibility for diversity of voices and diversity of content in the sense that these logarithms are really kind of pulling on these other sort of data points to figure out what it is that you want to see. That's right. Really, and so in, yeah. Yeah. That's and so in the past, it was like the sports editor, right. Or the, the, the editor of the news broadcast who was kind of dictating what you wanted to see. And at least in those instances, you could write back and say, hey, you know, sports journalist or hey, USA Today, we want more coverage of women's sports or we want more coverage of the WNBA. I don't know who you write to now to say like, hey, we want you to change your logarithm so I get more diversity in content so that I'm not just always seeing the same sorts of articles, right? Because if I'm on Facebook or if I'm on Twitter, I get like, you know, all kinds of things about women's sports, right? But how much of that is because, you know, it, it's it's pulling from these other things. You know, I was like, oh my God, there's so much coverage of, you know, whatever it was, you know, the World Cup, right? But I'm curious for those who have different kind of social media profiles, right? Are they also seeing the same articles that I'm seeing? Probably, Probably not. not, right? <laughs> and so- 
So I think that's going to be kind of a, a challenge in terms of like sport research in the future is, is how do we capture that? Or even if you're going to Google, right? I think that's another way that people consume sport media, right? You want to hear what happened. Okay, I'm just going to go to Google and like Google whatever and get the articles and look up you know, what's, what's going on? Like, oh, wait, what's going on with Colin Kaepernick and the NFL? Okay, I'm just going to Google. But, you know, Google is also operating on, you know, kind of particular logarithms as well. And right. so you might get, you know, d- depending upon your past search history, different kinds of news articles are going to come up at the top. We're still not going to get the gummy bears. It's probably not. <laughs> I mean, if you want gummy bears... Go to hear her sports. <laughs> That's where the gummy bears are located. Right. Um, you know, these, these, these other spaces. And I think that, you know, my, my hope is that, you know, that, that more and more people are able to find these sources and, and, you know, hopefully that'll, you know, kind of spread throughout social networks and, and, and so on. And so that the, the gummy bears aren't the, um, the golden ticket in the Willy Wonka factory. Right. Again, I'm continuing on with that candy metaphor for yes. what it's worth. Excellent. Well, we've reached the hour mark. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? Oh my gosh, this was an amazing conversation. And it's been a pleasure to be here and have this conversation with you. I I thought the the topics we covered, I hope will be really informative for your listeners. I'm so thrilled. And I definitely want to get you back. So I will take you up on that offer. Definitely. Looking forward to it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. A big thank you to Cheryl for being on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to her again to get the next update. Head to show notes for links to resources from this episode and to find out more about Cheryl's work. Pass along the link to Hear Her Sports Podcast so your friends too can be introduced to more badass women. Call our new Hear Her Sports hotline at 725-BE-BADASS to leave your own badass comments. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Till next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.